So if you have your Bibles this morning, I trust you do. I'm going to invite you to open with me to the book of Obadiah. And I know what some of you are thinking. That Yes, that is actual, actually a book in the Bible. If you need a little help, in my Bible it's page 862. I don't know if that will help you at all. But today we come to the book of Obadiah and welcome to week four of a series that we're calling Come Back to Me, where we are walking through what in the Hebrew Bible was just one book, and it was called the Twelve, but in our Bible it is twelve small books, and we call them the Minor Prophets. So We are just taking this, this picture, this stroll, this journey, looking and unpacking um, these twelve Minor Prophets and just hearing the call of God um, upon the nations to come back to Him. And I want to begin this morning with a, a long story that I'm going to try to make short instead of a short story that I can make long. So a long story I'm going to try to make short, and um, most of us will very quickly catch on and know this story. The Hatfields were an upper-class Confederate family from West Virginia. The McCoys were a lower-class Union family from Kentucky. The origins of the feud began with the murder of a McCoy a brother by a Hatfield um, in the waning days of the Civil War. Um, the feud, though, would not truly begin until the year 1878. Floyd Hatfield had a pig. Isn't that how great stories begin? So the McCoys also owned hogs. And one day Randolph McCoy saw uh, Floyd Hatfield's hog and noticed something funny. One hog had his ear notched just like the McCoys would do to all of their pigs to show their ownership. Floyd Hatfield was immediately branded to be a pig thief by the McCoys. The case eventually ended up in court. The judge for the McCoys case, though, was the Honorable Anderson Hatfield. Never works out <laughs> too well. The McCoys lost the case on the testimony of one witness, Bill Stanton, who was the friend of the Hatfields. Stanton was later killed by two McCoy brothers, allegedly in self-defense. Around the same time, one of the Hatfield children named Johnson was dating a McCoy whose name was Rosanna. So the McCoys didn't like this, so they set him up and had him arrested for bootlegging. I'll tell you, this is like a soap opera. The, the Hatfields rescued him by force. Johnson then abandoned the pregnant Rosanna and married her cousin. And this would be a perfect time for me to... Um, do some joke about West Virginia or Kentucky, but I'm not going to. I'm going to keep moving forward. So pretty soon, blood was flying on all sides. Cabins were burned down. Over a, well over a dozen lives were taken from these families. The family feud got so heated that the governors of Kentucky and West Virginia had to actually intervene, and even the U.S. Supreme Court had to get involved. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know the question that's hovering over all of us this morning is this. What happened to the pig? I have no idea, but my guess would be bacon. That would be my, my guess. But uh, what I do know is that when family feuds turn violent, the resolution is not normally initiated by the feuding family members, but oftentimes the, the resolution has to be initiated by a, either a supreme power and a higher authority that has to get involved. The story that I just told you, strangely, strangely enough, brings us to the book of Obadiah, which is the 31st book of the Bible, the shortest book in the Old Testament. This book, according to BibleGateway.com, has the distinction as being the least popular and least read book in the Bible. 
Let me just prove that to you. How many of you have ever heard a message on Obadiah? Proves our point. So the, the book of Obadiah has been described as a tightly strung crossbow. It's easy to hold in our hands, yet it has a penetrating range that reaches a surprising distance. Just think about the, the family feud that we see uh, mentioned in Obadiah. It began in eternity past. It was played out in a womb. It was manifest several times throughout history. And it finds its ultimate resolution in the future. So this is a story that continually plays out. And just some background here. How many of you remember the story of Jacob and Esau? So, okay, so here we go. So twins who struggled in the womb, their mother, Rebecca, asked God, what in the world is going on in here? This has got to be more than just acid reflux. Something is happening here. And God responded in Genesis 25, 23 and said, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And so what we know is the nation of Israel descended from Jacob, the youngest son, and then the nation of Edom, the nation we're going to talk about today or that Obadiah talks about, descended from Esau. In Genesis 28, God would affirm his promises to Jacob of blessings. But Esau, as we know, especially through the book of Genesis, was a godless man who despised God's promises, who despised God's ways. So Jacob, through Jacob, became Israel, through Esau, became Edom. And for centuries, these two nations would be at odds. When Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, the king of Edom refused to let the Israelites pass through his country in order to get to the promised land. Edom fought against God's people on several different occasions. You can read about those in 2 Chronicles 20, 28, 2 Kings chapter 8. In fact, from, an, from extra biblical literature, that is literature outside of the Bible, we learn that King Herod, who attempted to annihilate um, the Son of God, was actually an Edomite. So we see this picture of this ongoing feud. And the book of Obadiah is God's message about Edom in response to their sin. So the, the picture is, let me just give you a little bit of background here. So what we know is the book was written by a guy named Obadiah. His name means worshiper or servant of Yahweh. Um, he was written to the people of, of Edom. Now, we don't know when the book was written. Some say it was written between 850 and 723. Others say between 605 and 587. Um, I would tend to lean towards that picture. But here's the thing. So what most people believe is that when the Babylonians, that would be the, the later date, invaded Jerusalem, the people of Edom didn't help Judah. In fact, like an envious brother, Edom kind of um, were glad to see them overthrown. And Edom wasn't just sitting back doing nothing. They became a participant. They showed no mercy towards Judah. So what God does is God uses Obadiah to indirectly give a message to his people, meaning that even though they had been mistreated by the people of Edom, God was still in control. God showed his people that he was going to be the, and he was and is the ruler of the earth, and in the end, he would make all things right. And that's what we need to hear today more than ever. God is in control, and in the end, he will make every wrong right. Well, that's what we hold to. And when we know that, then we trust. When God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, we trust that. We don't have to get it ourselves. We trust it, that he will make every wrong 
Right. But just to summarize the, the book again, in the words of James Montgomery Boyce, he says this, Of the twelve books of the minor prophets, the most minor of all is Obadiah. Obadiah is noteworthy, for it is by far the shortest book, not only of the twelve minor prophets, but of the whole Old Testament. It has one chapter, and that contains only 21 verses. The book is minor in another way as well, in terms of most people's knowledge of it. We, uh, who knows what is in Obadiah? Very few. Yet, the book has a major message for our and every other age. So what, what we're about to see this morning, what we're about to read, the book of Obadiah proves to us that God knows the future, that God is faithful to his promises, that God is powerful to act, that God ensures that justice will be done, that God, hear this, hates pride, that God punishes those who curse his people, that God is still busy working all things for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. So let's jump into this short um, and neglected book, and let's see, let's see what God has in store for us in it and through it. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to read just the chapter, the book of Obadiah, in one sitting, these 21 verses, going to read through them. And then, like I said, the goal here is not to preach everything that Obadiah um, gives us, but what comes to the surface. So that's kind of where we're heading. So beginning at verse 1, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord and a message has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter? Because of the violence done to you, brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Just real quick, in verses 11 through 14, gives us a picture of how sin works. On that day you stood aloof. On the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them, but do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the days of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk 
on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually, and they shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they had never been. In Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. And they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines, and they shall possess the land of Ephraim, and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people Israel shall possess the land of Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in uh, Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and I love this, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's pray together. Father, we come to this um, least popular, least read book, and yet, God, there it is your word. We want to stop there. It's your word. Therefore, because it's your word, God, even this least known book is power, and it's living, and we thank you for it today, God. We just pray that your word, by your spirit, would just speak to your people, God, in a powerful way today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. So just think about this. So Obadiah proclaims a vision um, from the sovereign God to a people, the Edomites, who knew no theology. They had no place for knowledge of God in their lives. Unlike the audience of most of the other minor prophets, Edom made no claims to ever acknowledge or need God. In other words, Obadiah spoke to a a society much like our own. What we want to do this morning is we want to see a couple of themes from Obadiah that will be a catalyst, I pray, for conviction over our lives, for pride, for the pride that we have, and then a catalyst for encouragement concerning God's future promises for his people. So we're going to spend the remaining time this morning unpacking just two truths from Obadiah, seeing how God responds to his enemies and how God responds to his own. So the first truth is this, and this one's going to hurt. Number one, the first truth, God will fervently oppose the prideful. God will fervently oppose the prideful. The fact that God would send a man whose name meant worshiper of Yahweh to the people of Edom was no mistake, for they were a people who worshipped themselves, and Obadiah was a one who worshipped the Lord. And as we saw a few weeks ago in the book of Joel, unrepentant sinners do not get away with anything. God is storing up everything. And get this, God will get the last word. God will get the last word. Just think about this. Think about God's word, last word to Edom. Verse 2, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. They thought they were something among the nations. And God says, I will make you small. Look at verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Let me say that again. The pride of your heart has deceived you. It goes on to say, Who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the grounds? Verse 4, Though you soar aloft like the eagle, Though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down. I want to just lay it out here today. God fervently opposes the prideful. It was Jonathan Edwards who says, Pride is the worst viper that is in the heart. It is the first sin that ever entered the universe. Pride is, it, 
or in it, pride lies lowest of all of the foundation of the whole building of sin. So if you think about sin as a building, its foundation is pride. And it is the most secret, deceitful, and unsearchable in its ways of working. It is ready to mix with everything, and nothing is so hateful to God and contrary to the spirit of the gospel or of so dangerous consequence as pride. And the first thing, the most important thing that we need to understand about pride is, get this, God hates it. God hates it. Unless you might be thinking right now, well, those are harsh words for you to use about God. My God doesn't hate. My God just loves. Let me just give you some, a few texts here. Psalm 5.5, 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You, being God, hate all evildoers. Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 16.5. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You know what the greatest thing exalted among men is? Us. We exalt ourselves among each other. And I know what you're thinking. It, it seems unpleasant for us to think about a God who could hate. And then we hear the word abomination. And abomination means that it's a stench in the nostrils of God. It's utterly repulsive to him. This is how God feels about pride. He hates it. It's an utter abomination to him. And let me just take, I'm going to take on something that you probably were not expecting to take on when you came to church this morning. And that is God's hatred and abomination towards, hear this, sinners. We would all agree that God hates sin. But let me just say this God doesn't just punish sin, God punishes sinners. And in fact, one of the things that we lift high is that our sin was placed upon Jesus. But God didn't just pour out his wrath upon sin alone. He poured out his wrath upon his son. So think about this. I'm pretty sure this is one of those times that me quoting the Bible is about to get me in trouble. But, but so be it. I think we need to understand, sometimes we have a tendency for the world to come up with a saying that sounds so good, and us as a church, we grab a hold to it, and we're like, that sounds great. Let that be our battle cry. And we have done that with this phrase, that God hates the sin and loves the sinner. Brothers and sisters, when we use that phrase, we are sending a message to the world that is not biblical. And we are teaching them they can do whatever they want to. They never have to acknowledge their sin before God because their sin exists outside of them. And, and in the end, God will just choose to overlook it all and love them regardless of what they do with Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that's not true. That's not biblical. D.A. Carson says, and I agree with him, this cliche that God hates the sin and loves the sinner is false. And we should abandon it. For 14 times in the first 50 psalms alone, the psalmist states that God hates the sinner and that his wrath is on the liar and so forth. In the Bible, the wrath of God rests on both the sin and the sinner. Just think about John chapter 3, the love chapter, for God so loved the world. We know that when we grab a hold of that one. What we don't recognize or acknowledge is that chapter ends in verse 36 with the wrath of God. It ends with God's wrath. So we can't simply say God hates the sin but loves the sinner because it's plainly not what the word of God ultimately teaches us. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Here's what I would suggest. Let God be God. 
Let God be God, meaning there are many things that God reserves the right to do that we cannot do. God judges the wicked. We cannot. God gets the last word over every person. We do not. God makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. We cannot. Just think about this. There are things that parents are allowed to do in their homes that children aren't allowed to do. In the same way, there are things that God does in the universe that we cannot This doesn't make God a hypocrite. It makes God holy. It makes God other. It makes God higher than we are. God is God and we are not. So in some senses, obviously, there are senses to which God hates sinners. If you take every reference to the wrath of God in Scripture towards sinners and um, every reference to the love of God towards sinners, there are more references to his wrath in the word of God. In fact, we don't like hearing this, but the Bible says outside of Christ, we are enemies of God. That's how we're described, enemies of God. But let me just say this, at the same time, we cannot, we must not deny the fact that God loves sinners. And that God holds out mercy and grace and forgiveness even to those who hate him. The best way I can put those together is this. Does God hate sinners? Yes. Look at the cross. Does God love sinners? Yes. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Yet, quickly, let's get back to the issue of of, of pride. But not yet. (laughs) Because i got to say this. It is our pride that will keep us from believing the God of the Bible. Meaning some of you right now are going, I will never believe what you just said. And what you were saying is you're not neglecting me. You're not standing against me. You're standing against the God of the word. So it is your pride that's keeping you from accepting the God who has revealed himself to us as a God who hates sin, who is angry against sin, a God who is holy and other than us. But just just back to pride quickly. Think about James 4, 6. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The word opposes there doesn't simply mean that God avoids it or God keeps his distance from it. It means that God works in opposition to all those who are prideful. We have seen this in Scripture throughout, that pride is the foundation of all sins. And what pride does is it lies to us, it cripples us, and in the end it will kill us. If there is any lingering doubt about the poisonous effect of pride in our lives, listen to the words of of Pastor Sam Storms. I'm going to make sure he gets credit for this because it's about to hurt. So if you got a problem, I'll give you his email address. He says this, Pride is the reason why some men won't say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, when they are in the wrong or won't show outward love towards their children. Pride is the reason why some women shop endlessly, endlessly lest they appear less fashionable than others or why they gossip uncontrollably to bring others down. Pride is the reason some parents push their children beyond what is healthy and what is of no eternal value. Pride is the reason why some business people won't carry their witness for Christ to the office. Pride is the reason why other men won't serve in a visible capacity in the church. Pride is the reason why some refuse to submit to the authority of God's word. Pride is the reason we don't forgive others. Pride is the reason we don't live in community with others. Pride is the reason we don't serve others. And Pride is the reason we don't worship God in front of others. And it is pride that explains why some of you are offended right now by the way I've just attributed some of your thoughts and actions to your pride. 
perhaps the best summation of this is found in Proverbs 26, 12. It says, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And according to Obadiah, hope was gone for the people of Edom. They would eventually disappear into oblivion. Meaning, there are no Edomite restaurants left. They're, they're, they're gone. We're not eating there anymore. So just think about this. God will fervently oppose the prideful. We've got to make sure that we understand that and that we ask God for, to allow us to humble ourselves before him. That leads us to the second truth, which is this. God will faithfully uphold his promises. God will faithfully uphold his promises. God will fill, fulfill his promises concerning his own Look at verse 15. For the days of the Lord is near upon all the nations. We know that that is the second coming of Christ, which also there was part of that was fulfilled in his first coming. But it's a picture of what is coming. The day of the Lord is a constant theme throughout the prophets. Verse 17. In Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. The house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. And then verse 21. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And of course, most Bible scholars say that this, in essence, is speaking about the millennial kingdom. I want to drill down a little deeper. Think about this. The Nazis overran France in World War II. The French resistance fought against the Nazi, um, not the Nazis, in guerrilla warfare. And just suppose you were a member of the French resistance, and just suppose you were... I'm fighting alongside other Frenchmen that you believe to be your friends. Then came a day that those that you thought to be your friends betrayed your group to the Nazis. Many of your friends were killed and you were captured and imprisoned. In that moment, what do you need to hear the most? Do you need to hear you tried your best? Or do you need to hear D-Day is coming? I think what you need to hear most is D-Day is coming. The allies are coming to free you. And this is what verse 21 says to the people of Judah. You're suffering now. Now is not good. You have been betrayed by your own, but the kingdom shall be the Lord's. D-Day is coming. Obadiah ends his prophecy with encouragement and comforting notes. The kingdom will ultimately not be ours. It will ultimately be his And just think about it. The issue here is how we often think about things. When we hear the word kingdom, what comes to our minds? We begin to think about kings and queens and prince and princesses and fair maidens and knights and castles and moats and drawbridges. Or we think about the the magic kingdom and all the things that come that way, meaning that we attribute the word kingdom to to the earth. We, we, We attribute it to whatever is here. Yeah, let me be very clear this morning. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we are not talking about a political kingdom. We are not talking about a national kingdom. We are not talking about anything built by people or sustained by people. We are talking about the kingdom of God. It is his kingdom and the kingdom shall be his. The word kingdom really means reign or rule for it is the rule and the reign of of Christ in our lives and the rule of reign and reign of Christ in the world. In every way, this kingdom exclusively belongs to him. 
I think of, about Justin Martyr, a Christian apologist who, who said of the church in A.D. 155, so a little over 100 years after Christ died, he said, when you hear that we look for a kingdom, you suppose without making any inquiry that we speak of a human kingdom. Instead, we speak of that, that which is with God, as can be shown from the confession of the faith made by those who are charged with being Christians, even though they know that death is the punishment awarded to those who so confess. For if we look for a human kingdom, we would deny our Christ so that we might not be killed. And just think about this. Jesus comes on the scene, and in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It is at hand. Or think about in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. And he says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. So we are, we are praying for that. We are desiring that. We want that. But just to connect real quick the pride issue with the promise issue. Let me say this. We will never be able to pray your kingdom come until we pray, God, my kingdom go. Let me say it again. We will never be able to pray, God, your kingdom come until we pray, God, may my kingdom go. Whatever I'm building, God, is not worthy of you. May my kingdom go. So in Christ, the kingdom has come, and in Christ, the kingdom is coming. So think about this. Whenever Christ is enthroned in the human heart as king, the kingdom of God has come. So that while we cannot say that, that he is ruling over all of the world at this present time, he is certainly ruling in the hearts and lives of his people. So, and that's, let me say this, it's fundamentally wrong. With that being said, that Christ reigns in our hearts, it's fundamentally wrong that anyone should not allow Christ to reign in their lives. And the reason it's wrong is because he's worthy. He's worthy. So to not let him reign in our lives is fundamentally wrong because we're not worthy. Our families aren't worthy. Our jobs aren't worthy. He alone is worthy. He is worthy of it all. We have to understand that. So if you're here this morning apart from Christ, his kingdom can come today into your life. In fact, his kingdom wants to come today into your life through Jesus Christ. It will come. It can come. It will come. Yet also know this. And thinking about the day of the Lord mentioned throughout the minor prophets, that his kingdom is coming. We have to understand this. When we pray your kingdom come, we're not just praying, God, just um, may your spirit invade the hearts of people through salvation. We are praying that, but we're also praying, may your kingdom come, meaning, oh God, we're waiting for the day for your glorious return. We're waiting for that day, Jesus, where you will come again, where you will come again. In fact, turn with me real quick to Revelation chapter 11. We're going to put the, the verses on the screen, but I want you to be able to see them just so you know I'm not making this up. But Revelation chapter 11, just listen to this. Revelation 11, beginning at verse 15, it says this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders, it tells us, they fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, look at verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time of 
for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. One day the heavens will split open and Jesus will descend and he will plant his feet on Mount Zion or Mount of Olives, excuse me, and he will establish his kingdom um, on earth and he will break the tyranny of sin and pride and he will make every wrong right. And let me just say this, and there is not one thing that Satan or you can do to stop him. There is not one thing that we can do to stop him. On that day, on that day, it will be very good for those who humbled themselves in the sight of a holy God and came to God on his terms, which is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. But also, it will be a very bad day for those whose pride kept them from seeing his worth. Therefore, understand this, brothers and sisters, God opposes the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Oh, that we would understand this picture of Obadiah. That we, we, we overlook, we don't read it, we don't hear messages for it, but it's to our it's, it's, it's to our demise that we don't hear this. God stands against pride. He stands against it. He hates it, but praise God, he keeps his promises. And all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that doesn't, that doesn't fill us up with, with pride in ourselves. That humbles us and fills us up with pride in him and who he is and what he has done for us. I know these truths have been hard. I know they're not easy to hear. I know it's not easy to think about this kind of God that the world would tell us. That's not the kind of God we want to hear, but it is the kind of God that will save us from our sins. And it is the kind of God who has revealed himself to us. And it is the kind of God who is worthy of our worship and praise, even when we don't like it. And here's what I would say to those of you who say, well, it just doesn't seem right for God to do this. Are you saying in this moment that you are more, more merciful than he is? Because the second you think you're more merciful than he is, then lay down your life. Lay down your life. But understand this, please don't because it won't make a difference. <laughs> because we already have him. And he will forever be enough. If you go ahead and stand with me, please. I'm going to call the musicians, Brother Frank Ford, as we enter into a time of invitation and consecration where we say whatever it is the Lord is telling us to do, that we would do it. And let us pray together. Father, again, as we began this service, we want to continue, Lord, humble us. God, humble us before you. God, there is no place for pride in your presence. There is no place for self-sufficiency in your presence. There's no place for self-righteousness in your presence. Oh, God, humble us. Humble us. God, you oppose, you resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble. God, we need your grace. Need your grace. God, give us that this day, Lord. Just show us our great need for you. God, break the pride of our hearts, God, today. Lord, anything that would keep us from seeing you for who you truly are, break it today. God, break it today. Break us today, Father, that we would humble ourselves before you. 
And as we do that, your word says that you will exalt us in due time. We look to you, we trust in you, we hope in you. And we thank you that you are a God who will fulfill not just some of your promises, you will fulfill all of your promises. Lord, do that, we pray, in our lives, in the life of this, your church, in the life of this, your world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.